Hello, I'm Anthony Day and this is the Sustainable Futures Report for Friday the 12th of March. Over 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by water. The beaches, the boundary between the oceans and the other 30% of the surface where we live, is constantly battered by waves. But before we get on to that, this week we have a new patron. Many thanks to all the patrons who donate to support the Sustainable Futures Report and a special welcome to newest patron, Philip Mellon. More details about how you too can show your support at the end of this episode. Also this week, I've had some feedback from new listener Adrian Bond with a detailed critique of some of my previous episodes. Well, without feedback, we can't make things better, can we? I'm hoping to have an in-depth chat with Adrian before long. And now to the main event. My guest on the Sustainable Futures Report this time is Kim McCoy, author of the third edition of the book Waves and Beaches. The purpose of the interview, Kim, is to talk about the book. But um, I'd like to talk a bit about you, first of all, because I've come across a picture of you in the book and the caption says adventurer, oceanographer, engineer, inventor, sailor, freediver, paraglider and polyglot. Would you like to fill in a bit on that before we actually go on and talk in more detail about the book? Well, um, it's it's been fun so far. Um, I've lived in seven countries, uh-huh. including England. I went to school in England for a while. Oh yes, in near London. I went to university in the U.S., Germany, and France. Uh-huh. And I lived in Italy. Uh, I was uh, a principal scientist with NATO. For a few years, lived in Italy for five years, and along the way, you just sort of collect things, hobbies and interests and fashions. And I've been free diving since I was about eleven, and so breath hold diving. Although I also did tank diving. So, and I've done over forty major field experiments domestic and foreign, all over the world. Worked with the National Science Foundation. Ran a company for the better part of 30 years and we designed and built oceanographic instruments. And we sold those all over the world and participated in experiments with all sorts of institutions. Spent about a year of my life in polar regions and uh, nine, nine trips to polar regions. I think that really gives us a lot of information about why you are the man who should have uh, published this book, which we're going to talk about, Waves and Beaches. Waves and Beaches, the powerful dynamics of sea and coast. The third edition, which you have produced, will be published next week. I had spent years doing coastal wave dynamics, so that's why I had used the book as a textbook. So I already was front-loaded with the expertise, shall I say, and experience in the field. So it was just a natural for me. 
Okay. Well, as you say, the book's a textbook, but it's more than a textbook, I think. I think it's a, a guidebook for some people, a textbook for other people. I mean, as a textbook, it's got some pretty spectacular photographs, which you don't normally expect to find in uh, an academic manual. Uh, who, in fact, is this aimed at? I think it's quite a wide range of potential readers, isn't it? Well, it's it's really anyone who's interested in the coastline. For some people, the coastline is an emotional thing. You know, they go there for quiet and open spaces. And some people look at the coast, they're, they're you know, coastal engineers. So this book is really a, a hybrid of emotions and equations. So it's a difficult thing to say who's the readership because there are certainly people that are rotor heads, you know, people like myself that studied math and physics and other disciplines that will find very, very useful information in it. But there are also people that will just read the captions of the photographs and uh, acquire very substantial understanding of how the coast interacts with the sea. Yeah, because you, uh, you, you've you got detailed mathematical calculations and explanations of the dynamics of waves on the one hand. Uh, the chapters which I found particularly interesting, of course, was number five, the winds and waves of climate change. Climate change is a game changer, isn't it? How, from a waves and beaches perspective, are we going to see changes? The winds and waves of climate change is really a, a, a large net over trying to let people first understand that changes are occurring. And, and some of these changes, or most of these changes, are very difficult to comprehend if you just stand and look at the ocean for a day or two. These are subtle things, as is climate change. And it really is affecting everybody's life. And if you live on a coast that is rather gradual slope, like it is on the eastern coast of the UK, out where the Humber, in your part of the world, where the Humber River empties into the North Sea, mm -hmm. not too far from uh, Hornsea, I think it is, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that area was formed thousands and thousands of years ago, the land, shall I say, uh, through sedimentary processes. So sediments were carried either by ocean waves, transport along the coast, or they were eroded cliffs that were under undermined by waves, collapsed, get ground up by the waves, and then it forms the beach sediment. And so how will climate change impact that? Just I'll take it local uh, to use, you know, local to the eastern coast of Britain. Yeah. Over the last hundred years, sea level has risen by about 15 centimeters. That's about six inches. And in an area where you have a promontory, a granitic, a very solid rock, it's not going to matter very much. However, if you're in an area that has a gradual slope, it will not only erode the coastline, but it will also remove the coastline. And with a slope of one in a hundred, some areas even have one in a thousand. So that means if you have a a six inch change in sea level. That means in a one in a hundred slope, you lose 50 feet 
of shoreline. So it's cut back by 50 feet, just with 15 centimeters. Now, that's long period things. It's not going to be happening. Uh, Anthony, you and I are not going to see another 15 centimeters for the balance of our lifetime. Mm -hmm. But people that are alive today will see much more than that. It's estimated that by the end of the century that there'll be, again, that much increase in global sea level. Some estimates are... 18 centimeters, a little over six inches. Mm -hmm. And so I think where you live in York, York has been a city for a couple thousand years. It's been pretty stable. You know, yeah. uh, the society has developed over millennia. Now, at the current rate of melting, and if we only look at, at Greenland, in a thousand years, of course, long after we are gone, it's estimated that all of the ice, the glacial ice in Greenland will be melted. That will add about seven meters, about 25 feet to sea level. Now, York is roughly at seven meters above sea level. So York will be coastal zone by the time Greenland melts. And if we don't change things, it will just continually, the sea will continually impinge in some areas. Now. That's the bad news. The good news is, if you're on the Isle of Man, uh, the coastline is shifting. So in the Irish Sea there, uh, some of the land is uh, being diminished and other areas it's being deposited, such as on the south side. However, the people in the Isle of Man, the, it's been worrisome enough for them that they've had a, they've created a national strategy, a strategy They've created a national strategy on sea defenses, flooding, and coastal erosion. So if we don't do anything in the near term, the longer term, we're going to have very substantial problems. So building in coastal floodplains or areas that are subject to storm surges, your, uh, the country across the, the North Sea, such as uh, the Netherlands and Belgium, um, primarily in Netherlands, they've had massive engineering endeavors completed successfully to protect the coastline. The Rotterdam barrier is an immense structure. And so they take a long-term approach to known changes and work accordingly. So those are, those are some things in I'll call it the UK area and the North Sea area that are very, very obvious. Oh, I think uh, I just read last week uh, or a couple of days ago uh, to the south there uh, near the Isle of Wight, the Hurst Castle. Uh, it's uh, part of the wall has fallen into the sea. Mm. That was built during Tudor times with Henry VIII. Yeah. So something that's been stable since the 1540s is no longer stable. Now that's sort of a little, I mean, things fall down, but this yeah. thing fell into the sea. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, it's no longer subtle if one wants to observe it. If you want to have an ostrich approach to it, nothing's changing. The sand will look the same if your head's in it. <laughs> but if you look at the data, and luckily we have lots of satellite data and really millions of sensors spread between being in the sea, on the land, and 
viewed from satellites, really millions of data points every day, we're now understanding some very, very subtle things. And the movement is in not in a good direction. Okay. Well, if we take a global view, a large number of international capital cities are on rivers and on river estuaries. What can we do about that? I mean, they are surely going to be at risk. Um, are we able to manage that risk or are we going to have to uh, see these cities moving inland? Well, you touch on something that is hopefully gaining much more attention on an international level. Uh, the city of Jakarta, for instance, it, the management, uh, the politicians recognize that there is a inundation problem in Jakarta, Indonesia, and they have, for a while, for a decade or two, they started building seawalls. And they realized the roughly 20 kilometers of seawalls that they've built is not enough. And they're being overtopped. And Jakarta's situation is complex. The land is sinking at the same time the global sea level is rising. So you have what's called local sea level and global sea level. Uh, I can get into that, but it's a little bit technical. Okay. Uh, um, but what really matters for an individual is what's happening where they live. So I, I'll refer to sea level as local sea level. Yeah. And so the municipality needs groundwater for various purposes, and they pump that out. And if you can imagine, as you pump out liquids below land, the land sinks slowly. Mm -hmm. And so the land is sinking and sea level is rising. So it's a double double whammy. So they have, they have plans to relocate portions of Jakarta. And I think there's even funding and um, legal processes that have been undertaken to relocate that. Now, if we move to the uh, border of Bangladesh and India, yeah. the eastern, eastern there in the Brahmaputra Ganges Delta, and there's a picture in, in Waves and Beaches about that. Mm-hmm. It's somewhere around 10 million people that are estimated that are going to be relocated because of sea level change. The delta, the Ganges Brahmaputra delta, has the greatest sediments of any river in the world. It has sediments that are estimated to be about 20 kilometers deep in some areas. It's been taking stuff out of the Himalayans for millennia. Yeah. And so water comes, the glaciers melt, there's various sources to it, but glaciers and rains carry sediments out to the delta and deposit them in the bay. And they've deposited there for 20, uh, for 20 kilometers of depth. Now, what's happening to the glaciers in the Himalayas? Well, they're melting, and after a while, there won't be any more of it to melt. So the flow through the Delta is going to be changing. So the sediment dynamic is, is changing. Mm -hmm. And they, in many, most, most of the major rivers in the world, they've built dikes along the river uh, banks. Yeah. And, it, and that causes the water, when there's a, a large flow of water, so large rain or spring melt, it flushes out the sediments into deeper water because you're constraining it. So constrain the flow, a higher velocity, higher speed. And that 
doesn't allow the sediments to be deposited and then form the delta it's been which it's been doing for the last 5000 years so this dynamic really starts for for that river system starts in the himalayas yeah. and and it ends basically when the sediments are lost in into the bay into the indian ocean um there are many places uh, let's move if you wish, would you want another location that's changing? Yeah. Anthony, okay. <clears throat> so another area that's being affected by the winds and waves of climate change is in the South Pacific. So the island nation of Kiribati. Kiribati is not well known to the average person living in Europe or North America. But it's been the site of a terrible suite of battles in World War II between the Japanese and the Americans, and the people there survived it. And then mm -hmm. Later in the 50s and 60s, unfortunately, they tested nuclear weapons there, and the people survived. Some of them were relocated, but people have been living there. Now what's driving them away is changing sea levels and changing weather patterns. So the people in Kiribati have been relocating for over a decade, some of them to Australia and other areas, and they're trying to purchase land. I think they've been successful. And they're Kiribati may be the first country on earth to disappear. It's yeah. going under. So there's that's combined with global sea surface temperatures, so the upper water, the upper few meters is what influences what that's what the coral reefs experience. So there's a relationship between coral reef bleaching events, so the die off of the coral reefs mm -hmm. and water temperatures. So unfortunately, Kiribati has had a couple of very major coral reef die offs and it hasn't recovered from the one that occurred five or 10 years ago. I think it's like 60 or 70. I can't remember remember the exact number percent of the the reef has died off yeah yeah and well, the the great barrier reef in australia is dying off unfortunately isn't it yeah the the reefs are dying in many yeah. places yeah and and it wouldn't be so bad coral you know it was a complex symbiotic organism you know there's some phytoplankton that live with it i'm not a biologist but pretty complex and they live at a certain depth. You know, if they're too high out of the water, they get burned. If they're too low, they don't get enough sunlight. And so as sea level rises, you think, oh, okay, well, the coral reef is just gonna grow in a different location. Well, sea level is rising too fast for the coral mm. to build up. So a tree that grows, um, you know, three, four feet, a meter in a year, hey, it's not a problem if the riverbank is moving around there can get large and roots go out mm. corals some corals only grow a millimeter mm. yeah. yeah there's a deep deep water corals that that grow millimeters in decades so it's yeah. it's really a, a very slow process for the organism however a very fast process for sea level rise mm. and, and a very subtle thing with Kiribati is the wind climate has changed so it's a hard thing for you or I to look out the window and say, oh, that 
wind has changed by 0.5% over the last 10 years, but satellite data can tell us this. And it's shown that the wind speeds have increased a small amount, very small in the 1% range, and the direction of the storms has changed slightly. And what coral reefs do, they have what's called a spur and groove alignment, sort of like your fingers sticking out. And those spur and groove alignments are basically perpendicular to the wave fronts as they come in. And now you have a different direction of the waves during storms. So what usually occurs is the wave comes in, it goes up in between the wave and uh, spur and grooves, goes up over in the lagoon and creates a flushing of the lagoon. So when you have a change in the intensity, you get more water going up over, you get saltwater inundation into the freshwater groundwater. So it renders the freshwater no longer palatable for human consumption and crop growing. So, and we know these things are happening. They're well documented, many, many peer reviewed documents. And Waves and Beaches has about 150 references in the back. So if you want to auger in, dig in a little bit deeper into these things, there's all sorts of references available for the reader of Waves and Beaches. Okay, just on the point you've been developing, we have, the world has, the objective to get to net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Hopefully it will. But if it does, are we going to avoid these sea level rises or is that built in already? Before any Homo sapiens sapiens were around, for millions of years, the highest CO2 level in the atmosphere was about 300 parts per million. Mm -hmm. We have now gone above 400 parts per million. It's the highest it's been in millions of years. Yeah. And we also know that it's continuing to increase. The rate of increases is still, we're not reducing the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We're still adding to it by gigatons every year. Yeah. So there's an overshoot. And that actually, that's an area that I worked in for a while. So if we stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere today, we'd still be stuck with the, the 415 or something like that parts yeah. per million. And that is still way too high. So if you go, okay, let's see, let's stabilize at 400 parts per million. Let's see how long it takes for the earth to respond to that. The answer is it's not good. All the ice is gone by that time. York is underwater. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, um, so there are obvious things which can be done, which is decrease our production of the gigatons of carbon dioxide every year. People, of course, look at the economies that are affected by that. And that's a complex societal and political question, financial question. I'm not trying to answer that one. But that's an obvious thing that you need to do. Another thing is population. So it's very unpopular to talk about population control. It's probably GDP heresy. You know, oh, you want to limit the number of workers? Oh, yeah. wait, what are yeah. we going to do? How are we going to pay for the pensions? What are we going to So, But humans, the anthropogenic, human-produced carbon dioxide, that's where it comes from. So I'm not condoning or supporting or not, but it's an obvious portion of the equation. 
And then we have how we utilize what, what we use our energy for when we're doing things. For instance, we're talking on a computer. The amount of energy that goes to the number of megajoules that go into building a laptop is non-trivial. So how does one reduce the amount of CO2? If, you know, if you buy a lap, laptop every other year, well, you're using a lot of energy. Buy a phone every other year, that's a lot of energy. So do you really need one? Well, sure, they're neat and they're advertised. And so public relations tells everybody it's great. So everyone goes off and buys them like sheep. Unfortunately, we're adding to that problem. And individuals can change their behaviors without compromising their lifestyles one iota. Well, Kim, I think we could talk for hours on this, and we're just really only uh, talking about one chapter so far. But um, thank you very much for your ideas and your insights. Um, and thank you for doing this book, because I think um, many readers will find it very interesting, very useful. Um, I think sailors and surfers, as well as oceanographers, will all find something in it. And um, as we said, it's published next week. And uh, thank you very much for talking to the Sustainable Futures Report about it. Well, thank you, Anthony, for having me. And for those that want to find it, you can find it on Patagonia.com and uh, the various social media outlets. And thank you very much. And thank you for being aware of things. And I hope that York stays uh, far from coastal zone during the balance of our lifetimes. Well, so do I. Yes, yes. Many thanks to Kim McCoy. As he said, the book is published by Patagonia, the outdoor clothing people. There's a specific link to the book on the Sustainable Futures Report website in the text of this episode. Next week, it's back to the magazine format. I'll have to decide which of the 26 stories I've identified so far that I can actually use. I'm also putting together a showcase edition, bringing together a range of items from previous episodes. Look out for that very soon. The episode for the 26th of March will be about Earth Hour. Earth Hour itself takes place on the following day, Saturday the 27th of March. Before I go, I promise to tell you how you too can become a patron like many other people, including our latest foundation supporter, Philip Mellon. Hi, Philip. For a small monthly contribution, you can help me cover the costs of the Sustainable Futures Report. It's the only source of income as there's no advertising, sponsorship or subsidies. As a patron, you will have exclusive access to the A to Z of sustainability, which I'm launching this month. A is for action, as I told you last time, and for a lot more besides. I'm always grateful to patrons for information and ideas. If you want to sign up, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash SFR. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR. Thank you for listening. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. I'm Anthony Day. Until next time. Thank you.